if it's not for me, who's it for? Um, of course, I mean, it's a given that church is for Christ, okay? That's a given. But after that, isn't it supposed to be about me? I mean, it's right there, point five, membership covenant. Last week, right? Point five, to be nurtured and fed through the corporate gatherings of the church. Me, okay? It's for me. It's about me being nurtured and fed. Sure, it's about Christ, but after that, isn't it about me? Imagine a conversation with your teenager. Some of you are first going to have to imagine a teenager. You're going to have to imagine a spouse and then imagine a teenager. Um, it goes like this. Dad, why do I have to go to church? To worship Christ. Dad, I can worship Christ from home. All right. All right. To hear the sermon. Dad, John Piper is online at home. Okay. Um, to participate in the worship, in the singing. Daniel Creswell's back. Daniel Creswell's back, Dad? Okay, I'll go. Um, <laughs> but it may go more like this. But I can do that at home. I've got Shy Lynn, Lecrae, and Randy Travis <laughs> on the internet. And you say, son, you got some eclectic tastes there. <laughs> dad, 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 I've got all this at home and no offering. No offering. Um, there are, dad, Whole churches that just meet on the internet. I'm not making this up. Lifechurch.tv is a multi-site church with campuses all across the country, as well as a campus that meets entirely on the internet. Okay, son. But maybe, just maybe, there's something more to this whole church thing than just you and Jesus. And then you say, let's pray and look at 1 Corinthians 14. So, let's pray. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 14, all right? God, in your kindness to us, help us see through the eyes of love this morning and how it is to rule our worship. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. You heard 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 25 read just before we started. Obviously, with a text that large, I'm not going to be able to go um, verse by verse through every, every bit of it. But the first time you hear that read, you're tempted to say that it's about two spiritual gifts, tongues and prophecy. It is about those things, but that's really not what it's about at its core. 
It's about something bigger, more foundational that Paul wants to teach us about why it is that we gather for worship. But before we explore that, it is good to, to deal with those two things, because um, those two gifts, because they are the tools that Paul uses to forge the principle that has to shape our worship. So I want to kind of set the stage for what Paul is saying at the heart of this passage by answering three questions, uh, kind of preliminary questions. The first one is, what are tongues? Because he talks a lot in this passage about speaking in tongues. Um, Theologian D.A. Carson defines it this way, speaking in tongues is a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit whereby the believer speaks in a language he has never learned and which he typically does not understand. That's pretty unbelievable. A believer, by the ministry of the Spirit, speaks in a language that he or she has never learned and that even while speaking it, they don't understand. Now, if we walk through the passage, there's a whole bunch of insights we can glean about um, this thing called tongues or speaking in tongues. In verse 2, we see that tongues is directed to God, not men. That it's, it's often praise and thanksgiving given directly to God. Uh, it does not appear to be a message given directly to the church. That's not the purpose of tongues, at least the way it unfolds in 1 Corinthians. In verse 3, you'll see that they are not understandable to the hearer. And we could also say not even to the speaker. And that's why interpretation is so important. So if you speak in tongues, Paul will say... You should pray that you can interpret because both the hearer and the speaker don't understand it unless it is interpreted. Back in verse 4, we learn um, that it does build up the speaker. Um, It's not understandable to the hearer or the speaker, but it edifies um, the speaker but not the church. The church is not edified when someone speaks in tongues. It's not built up when someone speaks in tongues unless there is interpretation given. You drop back down to verse 18, we see that Paul speaks in tongues a lot. And he has a desire back in verse 5 for everybody to speak in tongues. So it's clear This is not an anti-speaking-in-tongues passage. Paul wishes that all the Corinthians, all of us, could speak in tongues. And he does it more than anyone, he says. We find out in verse 14 um, that tongues engages my spirit, but it doesn't engage my mind. Because again... I don't even understand what I'm praying when I pray in a tongue. Um, it, in the next verse, we see that tongues can be manifest in song. 
as well as in speech or in, in prayer without music. And the last thing I'll point out to you as we kind of jump all through this passage, tongues will flat out freak out an unbeliever, okay? It freaks out a lot of believers. But if you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and somebody speaks in tongues in the midst of our worship service, it will freak you out, okay? That's probably what the message says. I, I haven't looked it up. So speaking in tongues is a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit whereby the believer speaks in a language he or she has never learned and which he or she typically does not understand. Now, there are huge debates about uh, the nature of this speech. Is it the tongues or the languages of men or is it the tongues or the language of angels? If you remember, if you've ever read the book of Acts, you know that in the book of Acts, people spoke in languages they'd never learned like this. And it was the languages of people, of men, because there were people from all different countries and nations there in, in the city when this happened, and they could understand it without interpretation. It was definitely human languages there. But if you remember back in 1 Corinthians 13, we just finished, Paul makes allusion to the tongues of men and the tongues of angels. Um, and it's a, a vigorous debate about what this tongues is. And it's, it's fascinating to me because typically people who currently practice the gift of speaking in tongues say it's angelic. People who don't practice speaking in tongues say it has to be the languages of men. Now, I don't know whether... Practice is informing text or text is informing practice there, but that's typically what happens. The good news for me as the one trying to sort all this out today is that what Paul is teaching today about how this gift should be used in corporate worship works happily with the tongues of angels or the tongues of men. So I'm going to let you all sort out the details of that matter later. There's another huge debate. We touched on this in 1 Corinthians 13, whether this gift even exists today or did it cease a long time ago. And we, we did touch on that uh, briefly, but we don't hold to the view at Northwake that this, this gift has necessarily ceased a long time ago. And so uh, we believe that Paul's guidance in this passage that we're going to look at this week and next week is sufficient to guide and shape us in the use of this gift uh, in our church worship services and in our, in our personal practice in a Christ-honoring way. So we do not forbid this practice at Northway. In fact, we, as we'll see next week, we dare not forbid this practice at Northway. So that's kind of a little flyby of what, what this passage is talking about when it talks about tongues. For those of you who aren't familiar with that. But the second gift that he's talking about a lot in this passage is prophecy. What is prophecy? And if it's possible, this is, this is even more difficult to define than, um, than tongues is. And it's probably not intended to be real tightly defined by Paul in this passage. We could say it's someone who receives and then speaks forth a message from God. Um, many feel that this is a spontaneous work of God. That it, it comes upon you without preparation or study and you speak it forth. Um, others 
as a result of that, what I'm doing right now would not, in many people's definition, be included as prophetic speech because I, trust me, I spent some time preparing this. Um, so they would say that's, that's really not prophetic in that regard. Others feel that spontaneity is not a necessary component and teaching really could have some overlap with prophecy, things that you prepare uh, to share in, in an environment like this could be considered part of prophetic speech. N.T. Wright is one of those. It's interesting what he says. I'll share it with you because I think it's helpful for us to think about it. He says, when Paul says prophecy, he doesn't just mean foretelling the future. Okay. Nor is he simply referring to sudden flashes of inspiration in which someone comes to know something they couldn't have otherwise imagined. His central emphasis, he says, is on the God-given wisdom, understanding, insight, and teaching that the church badly needs. Prophecy does not need to be spontaneous to be genuine. The climate of our own age has tended to see spontaneous utterance as inspired, while something that needs working at is thought of as less inspired. He says this owes more to the Romantic movement, in which poets such as Wordsworth and Keats would pour out verses as though from a hidden source than to anything specifically Christian. So, prophecy can be spontaneous... But that's not uh, its defining characteristic. It is someone who receives a message from God and speaks it forth to the church for the building up of the church. So, it differs, this prophecy that we're reading about in 1 Corinthians, it differs from maybe what you would think of when you think about Isaiah and Jeremiah and the boys in the Old Testament. It differs from them at least um, in the sense of its authority. Because uh, you know what happened to false prophets in the Old Testament, right? Did not go well with them. If you were a false prophet, it was typically uh, death was the consequence of being a false prophet. But as we'll find out next week, in the New Testament, it's almost like they expected New Testament prophets to screw up every once in a while, not get it quite right. Because there was the responsibility of the elders in the congregation to evaluate the prophets. And as near as we can tell, nobody was killed as a result of not getting it all quite right. So there's a difference, uh, at least with respect um, to authority. Now, Paul, as he uses this term, prophecy, in this passage, doesn't seem to be real concerned about being real, real tight and real precise in the way he's using it. He'll talk in verse 6 about broader ideas. He says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So he's concerned about a broad range of gifts that are understandable. When he talks about prophecy here, you could see in verse 1 that it's a desirable thing. And it's good for you to want to prophesy and to encourage the church. Um, In verse 3, we see that it is to be directed to men for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Now you can see why it's so good for the church. Because it builds us up, it encourages us, and it comforts us. It brings consolation. Um, It does, as we'll see, build up the church in contrast to tongues in verse 4. And as a result, he says in verse 5, that it's greater than tongues because it can build up the church. Um, And... In contrast to tongues, it's, he says it has a great impact on unbelievers. 
as the song we sang said and as the closing verses uh, say, that um, they can be convicted. An unbeliever can be convicted by prophecy when it happens in the church. So, gives you some sense about what tongues is, what prophecy, prophecy is. Um, so, the third question is, what was the problem in Corinth then? Why is Paul um, issuing this corrective teaching about what they do when they gather about these gifts? And I suppose if you were to walk in this morning, if you'd walked in not to North Wake in our day, but if you'd walked into Corinth in their day, I imagine your first your first impression of what the problem might be would be chaos, okay? that it's chaotic, that there could very well have been people all around the room, all speaking in different languages at the same time without any necessary interpretation. So it would just be kind of this cacophony of voices and sounds and languages um, all going forth without being necessarily interpreted. And it may be because they felt like tongues, especially if they felt like they were the tongues of angels, was somehow a reflection of their spirituality, maybe their spiritual superiority or maturity, that they could do this thing, that they, that they were farther advanced because they could speak in the language of angels, as it were. Um, it says that one thing that they did understand rightly there is what they say in verse 4. Tongues does build up the speaker. Okay? It is a good gift from God for the one who is speaking it. And the very nature of tongues seems to be that of praise or thanksgiving. Down in verse 17, it talks about the one who gives in tongues, or speaks in tongues and is giving thanks. Um, so what Paul's concerned about here is not to run down or demean the practice of speaking in tongues, but his concern is that nobody could understand it, okay? that it was unintelligible. But actually, we could say even that problem is not the root problem. There's another problem that was down beneath, more foundational than that. See, the main problem at Corinth was that love did not rule their worship. That wasn't why they were there. They were unconcerned about whether their worship built up the church, the others in the room. See, this was me church, charismatic style. It was just about Jesus and me. And over and over and over again, Paul rebukes and reminds and encourages the church that their personal worship, when the church gathers, must build up the church. Look um, at verses 3 to 5. He says it over and over here. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets 
so that the church may be built up. You hear it over and over again. Build up the church. Build up the church. Build up the church. That's why you gather. That's why you come. Again, down in verse 17. He says, you may be giving thanks well enough if you speak in tongues, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, he says, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And it's not that tongues are bad or worthless or not to be done. It's this great overriding privilege and priority to bless others, to love others that Paul is so, so committed to and so excited about. N.T. Wright again says this. He says, tongues is like a private language of love. It's between you and God. It is essentially private. And then he says, and when private wealth is displayed but not shared, it becomes a matter of showing off. So love, Paul is saying, must rule our worship. Me church must become we church. All of us agree, Christ, love for Christ is the center. It's the highest priority. But next, next, we typically come to church, we come to this church with an eye towards what do I like? What benefits me? He is saying, before that, come to encourage and strengthen, strengthen and bless the church, the people in this room. This is a huge paradigm shift for all of us. And most of us watch that Me Church video, and we are entertained but appalled by it. If you found yourself liking the Me Church, okay, we need to talk, okay? That's... That that's merits a pastoral visit. Uh, we need to talk if that's the church of your dreams. Um, but what Paul is saying here is that before I come to church for me, I come to church for you. Okay? Now, some of you say, well, that makes sense for you. You're the pastor. That's what we pay you for. But Paul is saying, no, no, everybody, that's why you come to church. Not hoping that they'll sing the music you like. Not hoping that he'll preach a sermon that meets your needs. Not hoping that somebody will reach out and encourage you. But no, you are coming for everybody else. Love must rule the church. And it must rule our worship. What does it mean? For love to rule our worship. What does it mean for me to come to church for you? Well, it means that I will offer worship 
that builds you up. I will offer it. Okay? I will do that. Love requires me to do that. So when it's Sunday morning, I'm tired, I'm running late, it's crazy, and I'm thinking I can just watch the video online later. When love rules, I come for you. I come to encourage you by my words, by my actions, by my presence. I come for you to strengthen you for the good of the church. I will offer worship that builds you up. It also means I will only offer worship that builds you up. I will not offer worship that only benefits me. So if I speak in tongues, if I have that gift, then I will do that privately, not in the gatherings of the church, whether here or at our corporate prayer gathering where there's much more opportunity for sharing in public prayer and testimony, or in my small group. I will not use that gift of tongues because it does not build up other people unless, unless I can interpret. Um, if, if what I like or what I want or even what draws me to God doesn't strengthen you, then I will yield that in love. And what Paul's saying throughout here is that for someone to be built up, they have to understand what's going on. And that's his specific point he's pressing the church in Corinth about. Hey, you're, you're speaking in tongues and nobody gets it, okay? except you. Nobody benefits from it. For someone to be built up, they have to understand what's going on. Uh, think of it this way, uh, just to demonstrate this for you about the importance of intelligibility and understanding things to get it. Um, American-made movies and TV shows end up with very different titles by the time they reach uh, other countries. Um, For instance, Baywatch. In Germany, the lifeguards of Malibu. Uh, Growing Pains. In Germany, Our Loud Home. In Italy... Parents wear blue jeans. All right? Try, try, to, try to guess what this one is. Life, love, cows. In French, city slickers. All right? Here's another one. Field of wonders in Russian. Wheel of fortune. I... I have no idea. Here's another one. Sensation of living in Spain is Beverly Hills 90210. These last two are a little bit easier. Stone Age Family, Flintstones, you get that one. And Mama, I Missed the Plane, Home Alone. And, and here's the point is, that's with translation. 
I'm not reading it to you in Italian or Spanish or German. That's with translation, and we can't figure it out. That's why Paul says in verse 11, if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. For me to be built up, I must understand. That's the problem with tongues without interpretation. Nobody else gets it, so no one else is strengthened because they don't understand. So here, uh, we do not allow speaking in tongues in the gathering of our body, any of our gatherings, unless it's interpreted so that all could be blessed. You say, well, how does that work? Well, if it happened on a Sunday morning, if we were worshiping, um, for instance, if someone introduced hip-hop into the service and someone got carried away in the spirit as a result of that, or carried away by something, and, and they, they were speaking in tongues where you were, and one of our elders was made alert of that, they would simply approach them and graciously but directly say, we don't allow speaking in tongues unless you can interpret for the good of all. And we'd ask them to stop. It's, it, it, it's, not, it's, it's not a huge deal. The elders are all taking notes because they don't know that's their job. But that's what the elders, <laughs> that's what the elders are going to do. <laughs> um, so we don't allow speaking in tongues without interpretation. Not here, not in our Sunday night gathering, which is much more uh, active in uh, body participation uh, verbally, um, not in our small groups. Okay. Uh, we don't allow barking in our services. Okay, no barking. Now, some of you may not be familiar with that, but there was a movement a few years back. I hope it's gone. Started in Canada, and one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit was barking and crowing like a rooster. Uh, no, no. Not Bible, not here. Unintelligible, doesn't build up the body. I don't even think it probably builds up the people who are barking and crowing. We, we just don't, we don't, do, we don't do that. <laughs> Love builds up. Building up requires understanding. That's why Paul insists on it in worship. We could broaden that principle and say, um, worship lyrics must make sense to us to build us up. Daniel comes back from his sabbatical with the coolest music thing that he's ever run across, and it's all this and that, and the lyrics are incoherent. We're all kind of going, what? Uh, It doesn't build us up. It, It must be understandable. I suppose even more broadly, if Daniel had been over in the land of the ancients in Italy, and he'd come back, Uh, say, with some really cool Gregorian chant, which I'm probably the only one in here who actually has Gregorian chant in my iTunes. Um, But, you know, we don't understand that. That's not our our language. I'd say even broadly we could apply it at that level. We, We want it to be as accessible, understandable, embraceable as possible. Not that we won't ever use it for like an offering or something. Um... Love must rule. Love builds up, and to build up, it must be understood. 
That's why Paul excludes tongue from public worship when interpreted. That's why we will too, um, unless interpreted. This is not some arbitrary rule, you see. Paul's not making up just arbitrary rules. It's, an, it's a dictate of love. Love requires this. This has another really significant application as well when you think about bringing your neighbor who is unchurched and likely doesn't know Christ to worship with us. Um, the end of this passage shows what happens when God's words are brought even to unbelievers in this gathering. It says, um, there are people of strange tongues, quoting Isaiah here, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even though they will not listen to me, says the Lord, um, Thus tongues are assigned not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together, all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Okay. Um, so he's citing an Old Testament prophecy where judgment came upon God's people by, by a foreign people speaking an unknown tongue. And the idea there is that tongues are a sign of judgment on those who don't believe. Um, and one of the ways that people really struggle to make sense out of the idea that tongues are a sign for unbelievers and prophecy for believers is to view that sign as a sign of judgment. Um, Another way that people have helped us with this, because that almost sounds opposite to us, another possible interpretation is that what Paul intends here is a rhetorical question, not a statement. A question that expects the answer no. So he would say, he would be saying then, um, are tongues a sign not for believers but for unbelievers? No. Um, is prophecy a sign for unbelievers but not, but not for unbelievers but for believers? No. Um, and those are both viable options to understand this in light of what he's about to say. Um, honestly, Paul is verging on becoming unintelligible here as he warns us not to be unintelligible. That's a very, very difficult verse um, to sort out. But in what follows, he becomes clearer with what he's saying. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. So if so if an unbeliever comes and he hears tongues, he's confused. He thinks we're out of our minds. But if he hears prophecy, the word proclaimed in his language, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. I just want you to notice that in the early church, unbelievers were present. So bring your neighbors to hear the truth of God in the gathered assembly. It's a good thing. Don't hesitate to invite them. Here they have a chance to hear God's truth in a way that can bring conviction to their hearts such that they experience God's presence and become a worshiper of Him. So this morning, it's likely that some of you are here and you're standing in these shoes. You're not yet a follower of Christ. You are still asking questions. You're still exploring. And you are so welcome to come to our worship and eavesdrop on it. We want you to listen in. But in listening in, 
you may have a sense of what Paul's talking about right here. You may have already had a sense when someone has been teaching the scriptures, it's like they were speaking to you. Like whoever the teacher was who knows nothing about you, may never even have met you, it's like he knows your life story and he's speaking to you. Or maybe it's a song lyric that you hear and you think that was looks like it was written for me. In those cases, God has been showing himself to you. He has been communicating to you. He is calling you to worship him. What does it mean? What does this mean for our church altogether? Well, Honestly, our elders and pastors are rethinking our order of worship to make sure we are allowing these prophetic gifts to be used in the best way possible. There are already some great opportunities for this in some of our other gatherings, Sundays, Sunday evening, um, in our small groups. Um, but we're reconsidering how we do that here to make sure we're making room for the Spirit to speak to us and through us as He desires. What does it mean for us individually? What does it mean for me to come to worship for you and you to come to worship for me? It means when we come to church, it means we defer to one another in love. It means we will gladly give up our wants and desires and preferences for the good of another. It means that those of us who are older, will really be concerned about whether the music really engages the younger generation or not. That will be our priority concern. We'll be wondering to ourselves, is that really loud enough? Should that be louder? You know, the, the happy extrovert will be wondering, was that reflective enough? Was that contemplative enough? The reflective introvert will go, was that a rowdy enough celebration? The singles are wondering, when are we going to teach on parenting? I'm not sure we have enough teaching on parenting for the good of our church. And of course, the parents are wondering, are the singles being included and embraced and made to feel apart? Are we really doing that? That will be their great concern. It will be the, the childless couples who are saying, why hasn't that children's ministry building been funded? Let me be the first to give. And no one will say, but I don't have kids, so I don't care. Because it's not me, church. It's we, church. I am so concerned about your worship that I would sacrifice what I like, what I desire, what I prefer, even what is good for me, for your good. 1 Corinthians 14 is about tongues and prophecy. We learn a lot about tongues and prophecy from this chapter, but not mostly about that. Mostly, it's about love. It's about how we practice 1 Corinthians 13 here. Remember, 
It's real interesting what Paul said. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing, he says. Then he says in verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So, what do you tell that unmotivated teenager about why you go to church? You say, this ain't me, church, son. Love requires that we gather. And then you pray and look at 1 Corinthians 14, just like we have done. Let's bow together. Um, Father, if my heart is typical, I'm ashamed at how upside down I get this without even knowing. Um, That it's what I want and what I like and what I need. And uh, you chastise me, and I'm betting you chastise us. That this room is full of people more important than me. So may the love of Christ rule at North Wake, especially in our worship. Let's stand and worship our King together.